You're listening to Grace and People, a podcast about the people of Grace and Peace Austin. My name is Nate Oinonen, and today in this episode, we're going to listen to Kristen Raven as she interviews Luke Presley. Kristen is from Corpus Christi originally and has been here in Austin for about 14 years. She came to Grace and Peace along with her husband, Barrett, and their three kids, Ira, Wyatt, and Bowie, about five years ago. Luke and his family came from All Saints when Grace and Peace planted. He and his wife are active in foster care, and they would love to tell you about it. He's also a big fan of super difficult board games. Let's listen into their conversation. Hi there, this is Kristen Raven. It is April 26th, 2021, and I am here with Luke Presley. Luke, what's up? Hi, everybody. Not much. Doing the podcast. How are you, Kristen? I'm doing well. I think the kids are going to stay in bed. There's no telling what they're going to do, though. We talked about this before. You never know uh, what they're going to do when you're recording. You never know. Um, and if the kids do come in, and interrupt it. That will be a sign of the times. Yeah, authenticity. Something to embrace. It's a good thing. So true. Um, well, I'm excited to be here with you today, Luke, and I really want to get to where you're coming from. I've never really gotten to ask, where are you from? What, uh, what's your background like? I've got a, a little bit of a mixed background, not terribly mixed. Uh, I claim two nationalities, one as a Texan and one as a Louisianian. Okay. Um, my family has roots in Louisiana. My mom and dad grew up there in a tiny, tiny town deep in the pine woods of West Louisiana. We went back every month as kids to visit with grandma uh -huh. for a little bit. So, so that's very close to my heart. And we still go back all the time. My mom and dad live there now. Okay. I spent most of my childhood in Houston. I uh, was born in Bay City, which is on the coast in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Lived in Taiwan for kindergarten and first grade. Whoa. Houston really is probably. If my family still lived there, it would be hometown for so. Okay. Um, just what was Taiwan about? Gotta ask. Bechtel is a Halliburton competitor, so they do okay. fancy engineering projects. Dad was working uh, as an engineer on an airport they were building. Okay. He, his job throughout most of my childhood was taking uh, assignments overseas long term, so six months to several years. Wow. He would go, and he'd be there for six months and come back for a month and then go for six months. But for the Taiwan trip, we got to go on, which was wonderful. Wow. Okay, yeah. so you're living in Houston, growing up on the coast. How do you and Megan cross paths? I'm living in North Houston, a town called Spring. And Megan is also living in North Houston, a town called Spring. Um, she is going to Klein Forest, which is in Klein ISC. I'm going to Klein Oak. Both high schools? We don't meet each other in high school. Uh, we both also went to Baylor. And in Baylor, we were members of an honor, honors program called the uh -huh. Baylor Interdisciplinary Corps. And we met there. Okay. Yes. So what was that like? Do you remember where you were, what you were doing? 
Megan and I have different memories. So uh, <laughs> one of them is apocryphal. We don't know which one. <laughs> yeah, uh, my memory is freshman year, walking into this honors course with a whole bunch of nerds, and then a uh, smoking hot lady walks in the back in athletic shorts and baseball cap. And I look down at my feet and I'm wearing shorts and steel toed boots. <laughs> and I thought, she is too beautiful for me. So I'll, I'll go elsewhere. And that was the first time that I met her. Okay. I don't know why she ever showed any interest in me because we were very different people. But yeah, we met in, in high school and maybe in college. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, Dave. So fast forward, how many years have you been married? Fifteen. Fifteen. That's yeah. awesome. Congrats. It's harder and harder for me to deny being an adult whenever I do things <laughs> like I've been married for 15 years. Yeah. Did y'all get married pretty fresh out of college? In- incredibly fresh. I graduated on time because okay. I was a semester student. Megan took an extra semester uh, and we got married in her final semester. Of okay. Oh, that's so Texas. <laughs> yeah. It's so Texas. It's also so Baylor. So, um, ah. you know, Baylor has a, for anybody who's not from around here, they've cornered the market on yuppie Christian culture. <laughs> uh, and, and that culture kind of says, uh, find somebody who is uh, well-mannered, and likes to have a good time and marry them early, have lots of kids, get a stable job, and then send all those kids to church. So okay. And then to Baylor. To, well, Baylor students actually complain about Baylor a lot because, and I, it's, it's true of every university now, but Baylor has always been uh, incredibly expensive. Yeah. I, Baylor parents often try and discourage their kids from going to Baylor. I that. Yeah. Well, so, okay. We're going it now. Like UT. <laughs> how, how many kids do y'all have? Three kids and a dog. Avery is 12. Okay. Eleanor is nine, and Jack is seven. Which one of them is most like you? If you can put your finger on it. Being a parent is, uh, it's the world's best alchemy experiment. When you mix together these genetic lifestyle ingredients and you see what pops out and and the results are always amazing. So it's it's hard to decide exactly which kid is most like me. But uh, right now, top of mind, it's probably Avery. Mm -hmm. He has spent the last 30 minutes booby-trapping the house with ridiculous practical jokes um she has taken all of the letter boards and removed the sensible slogans that megan put up uh-huh. replaced them with nonsensical things that have absolutely no meaning whatsoever okay she doesn't know this but there is an army of green little men in the fridge <laughs> fries whoever opens the door next and all of the framed photos around the house, the family photos, uh-huh. um, she has taken dry erase marker and defaced them with mustaches and butt jokes oh. and stuff like that. 
and all of that is, is really up my aisle. I mean, that's my sense of humor. Um, we laugh about inappropriate things together while Megan stands by the side, wondering how she became part of this family. <laughs> Avery and I have a special friendship right now, but there are huge elements in both cases that, in all three cases, that, that I really feel like came from me. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are also foster parents sometimes. You are. And then also, you do other things in the foster community, though, right? Yeah, we've focused more on the other things recently. So um, there's a lot you can do to support fostering. Fostering is an incredibly important thing. And anybody who's thinking about doing it, I strongly encourage you to pursue that curiosity. It's also incredibly costly. Parenting is always a costly endeavor. Any good mature relationship requires uh, each person to contribute somewhat equally. You know, you don't want to be always taking from a relationship. You don't want to be always giving in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And it helps if those contributions are really obvious to see. So if I did dishes tonight and you do dishes tomorrow night, that feels really good. Mm -hmm. If those contributions are difficult to see, like if I do dishes tonight and you uh, treat me fondly tomorrow, that might still be needed exchange, but it's really hard to see that. <laughs> and with foster kids, you, you can't see the even exchange. Yeah. Uh, you have taken one or more children who have just left a home that they're familiar with, uh, a home that was probably frightening, and put them in an unfamiliar situation and said to them, I am your authority figure now. Yeah. Uh, nobody in that situation is going to be able to maintain a healthy relationship that has that very transparent, um, even trade of, of contribution. Mm -hmm. It feels very sacrificial to be a foster parent, very draining. Mm -hmm. One permanent placement of two boys, two young boys, mm -hmm. And it was a life-changing event, and it was very difficult for us. Uh, after we did it, we concluded that it was not a sustainable thing for us, so we changed the way that we participate. Mm -hmm. We both have a huge heart for kids and for their welfare. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more heartbreaking to me than seeing a kid who has done nothing to deserve uh, pain yeah. to be put into pain. And so it, even though we realized that we couldn't do full-time fostering all the time, we wanted to stay connected, continue to contribute. A few ways we did that. One way was Megan went to work part-time for a foster nonprofit. And that's not open to everybody, obviously, but we were able to do that. And she did that for a very long time. Uh, that was very beneficial to us. The other way that we stay plugged in is we maintain our certification and we do respite care and babysitting for foster families. Okay. So if a foster family, uh, if the parents need to go do a date night, for instance, then we can babysit. Or if the parent needs to go on a trip and cannot take the foster kid for whatever reason, sometimes those re reasons are legal, mm -hmm. then we will watch a foster kid for a week, two weeks. And that arrangement has been much more sustainable for us. Mm -hmm. and, and really very fulfilling. Okay. And that's what we're doing now. That's really cool. I remember uh, 
I remember seeing you guys a lot at church with the two boys. Yeah. Just, I mean, it was just written all over everyone's face. Like this is not easy. Not easy. Yeah. It didn't look easy. Um, it wasn't easy. You know, the, the really nice thing about though was, um, I really like meeting people and I like, I like knowing people in particular. It's very hard to get to know somebody in a work setting. It's very hard to get to know somebody uh, in most settings, but when you have someone come and live with you for nine months, you do get to know them. So, so getting to know those two boys, yeah, um, and uh, this their senses of humor, where they found their joy, what their struggles were, what their faults were. As difficult as it was, uh, it was also a, a journey and an adventure that I really got a lot of joy out of. That's really beautiful. Um, something else that I'm really curious about is that you are the first agnostic person that I've ever attended church with. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear kind of your story of how you got to a reformed Presbyterian church. Um, and, and kind of like, yeah, what, what it's like to be here. Yeah, so I grew up Southern Baptist, um, something of a, of, a, of a Christian zealot. It was very important to me. My faith was a core part of my identity. I went to Baylor because I wanted to get an education that would support my faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went through Baylor bold in my faith. I, I wanted, my goal in Baylor was to, to, to learn how to identify with people more, to build relationships more outside of the faith. And so a lot of my time in Beta was spent studying things like uh, Zen Buddhism and Chinese philosophy and Chinese religions, um, other religions, other points of view so that I could step outside of my own kind of uh, Texas Christian circle and, and bonds. Um, I had a lot of humility I, well, okay, so I had a an unstable mixture of, of pride and humility in in my ability or anybody's ability to really understand um, the the word of God to understand the world. Mm -hmm. so I wasn't tied particularly to doctrine. I thought it was very important to understand doctrine and have a point of view, but I was very willing to say. I was raised Southern Baptist, but I don't know if that's the right doctrine per se. Mm -hmm. So when I started dating Megan, I was, uh, I didn't mind going to her church and she was Presbyterian. So that's why I started attending the Presbyterian church. Okay. And we did that kind of a standard formula through our dating relationship, which was two years, maybe. Mm -hmm. We did that through the beginning of our marriage, which was several years. But about 12 years ago, I lost my faith. There was a moment I was in a dry spell, which didn't trust me out too much because it's kind of a standard teaching that your emotional relationship to God is going to wax and wane. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sometimes you feel close to him. Sometimes you feel apart from him. 
should not stress you out. And it didn't stress me out. I felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. But when our first kid was born, I had a really acute sensation that I was in the room and Megan was in the room mm-hmm. and Avery, the baby, was suddenly in the room. Mm-hmm. But God was not. And for some reason, the sense that God was still absent, even in this most pivotal moment in my life, mm-hmm. was the camel that broke the straw's back. And my, my God exists switch flipped from zero to one. And all of a sudden, I was convinced to my core that God was not real. Mm-hmm. My faith kind of fell apart. I had a big midlife crisis, and I've been agnostic since that point. I've gotten over a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still married. I'm still married to a Megan, a woman named Megan, who, <laughs> <laughs> who loves God and loves Jesus and still puts him at the core of who she is and everything she does. I also have three kids that I'm raising. It's important to me that my kids know how to love their mother, know how to show her respect, and know how to give her comfort. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's important for my kids to to see me practicing those skills, to see me going to church with their mom. They need to, to be respectful and involved in the things that are important to her. And so that's what I do too. Okay. Yeah. Was that, was it, um, I mean, I guess you said there were a few years of real crisis mode. Um, Was that, what was that? I mean, the switch feeling like that switch was off. Were you afraid or? No, I, I guess well, I guess I was afraid. It's hard to feel angry if you don't think there's someone to be angry at. I guess I don't know. What was that? Yeah, like? I had a, I had a mix of feelings, as you expect, um, and anger was a part of it, and, and fear was a part of it. Now that I think about it a bit, but um, the overriding feeling was was despair, mm-hmm. and. Um, I don't know what the feeling word for this, but the feeling of being lost. You know, I felt lost. Uh, I felt also undone. Mm-hmm. My faith was was the foundation that I built my life on and built my identity on. So losing my faith meant that I lost my identity, and I didn't know who I was or who I should be. Mm-hmm. My faith meant that I lost my purpose. Uh, there's a great comfort in knowing that the things I choose to do and the path that I take is a path set by the creator of the universe. Yeah. I'm going in the right direction. Even if I may feel um, doubt or uncertainty, I can take great comfort in knowing that God has set this path for me. Right. I lost that, which was a huge deal. Yeah. Trying to deal with the fallout of that, trying to rebuild my identity, trying to 
grapple with the loss of purpose was the crisis. And it took, took years to kind of deal with all of that. I also had to deal with the question of if I built my life on my faith and my faith had crumbled, mm -hmm. life crumbled. Mm -hmm. as my marriage, which was built on faith, crumbled. Um, so I had to, I had to reevaluate all of the things in my life that were important to me and ask, are they solid and can they stand again? And that was terrifying for me and for everybody. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, what, so you're in a different place now, kind of. What, what does it look like? I'm one thing uh, thinking about being able to ask you some questions, like what does the Bible look like to you kind of from where you stand today? Um, one question. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the Bible is, is something that, that was important to me for a long time. So it's, it's hard for me to look at it and, and feel super negative feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to look at, at too much of Christian of Christianity and feel negative feelings. In fact, most of the time, the feelings are pretty positive. For instance, when a Southern Gospel song comes on, my, my heart is filled with joy. It makes me very happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Bible, even so, the Bible now looks to me like a phenomenal attempt by a long tradition of people to understand the world and understand how to pursue goodness in the world. That is incredible. Life is hard and it's very easy to abandon goodness because you have to find food for the table. Mm -hmm. Or it's easy to abandon goodness because you have to find some little spark of happiness to get you through the day. Mm -hmm. Or to abandon goodness because you want to be the one um, who gets the love of a particular person. Mm -hmm. And to, to stay on the path of goodness requires uh, serious intentionality and sacrifice. Christianity in the Bible has, has kept people on the, in the pursuit of goodness for a very long time and given them uh, a worldview and a structure to understand uh, how things work and how to navigate the world. So it, it's, it's pretty positive. Mm -hmm. However, there's a limit to it. <laughs> um, and the Bible, I think, hints at this limit. I, 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 I'm not a bad memory for specifics, so I couldn't tell you where it is, but there, there's a passage that talks about the words, the wisdom of God being like nonsense to a non-believer. Mm -hmm. I think that Christianity uses that idea as a justification for embracing things in the Bible that are just irrational, that don't stand up to a common sense evaluation. Mm -hmm. Now in 2021 in the West, we are struggling with a lot of competing ideas about race, about 
gender, about sexuality. I think if you ask about homosexuality, for instance, and you interrogate it in a kind of intuitive common sense way, you would conclude that what two people do in the house across the street quietly has no bearing on my life mm-hmm. and uh, has, you know, apart from, from a few health concerns, has, has no real bearing on their life, either, no, no major obvious risk. But a lot of Christians are stuck in the place where their Bible and their interpretations here, but, but one reading, one proper reading of the Bible says that that homosexual activity is wrong. The Bible then becomes a barrier to love. It becomes a barrier to relationship building. Even though you can have a, a friendly and even, you know, strong relationship with the homosexual couple across the street, you, you know, that relationship will cap out at a certain point. At a certain point, you're going to have to come face to face with the fact that you as a Christian believe they're living in sin and possibly damned as a consequence. I don't know how you overcome that to build an even deeper relationship. So in summary, Bible, pretty good, big fan, but we can do better. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, yeah, we wrestle with particularly, uh, particularly our friends who are gay and just what our, what our, um, kind of like posture should be um and I just yeah it's it's such a a mystery where Barrett and I are are thinking all the time about how to and I mean with politics too with so many of these issues right now it feels like can you can you disagree with people and and love them at the same time or can you disagree yeah, with sure. like the, with the like with the foundation of what they're standing on and love them at the same time the, yeah it's that's a big question that's hard i i don't think the bible stops you from doing that i think the bible gives you a great framework for disagreeing with somebody and loving yeah. them um i mean Jesus' ministry was was all about him disagreeing with people, but still showing them love. Yeah. But but I do think that Christian American culture, a huge part of it anyways, has made that very difficult. Yeah. You there are certain when you're faced with somebody maybe who uh, believes in a very liberal immigration policy. And you respond to them by encouraging them or being polite to them. In some Christian circles, that will be interpreted as uh, an evil thing, or at least a, a distasteful thing. And you'll find that your your relationship with those Christians might be questioned. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that antagonism comes from the Bible. I think that antagonism comes from our own manifestation. Of, of the Bible, of our own American culture around it. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we need to do a part two of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> sure. If, if Nate, if Nate asked for it, I'd be maybe happy. we can, Nate, maybe we can do a, like a, a double date 
version. We'll there you go. That'd be fun. Bring in the spouses and, and we can ask the spouses about about the other person. Do some cross judgment. I think that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for being up for this, Luke. It's been really fun to pick your brain and get to know you. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, Grace and Peace has been a very welcoming community. And uh, if, if there's any way I contribute, can contribute, especially by doing something as simple as a 30 minute conversation, I'm, I'm very happy to do so. Awesome. Well, have a great night. You too. Peace. We're out. That was Kristen Raven interviewing Luke Presley on April 26, 2021. Hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you will consider being an interviewer or interviewee on this podcast. We would love to hear your story and you can reach out to us at our email, which is graceandpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was produced by myself and Joey Perez. Thanks for listening in. Hope to see you next week. Take care.